Well, good morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Michael. Uh, I get the privilege of being one of the pastors and elders at Veritas. And uh, man, it's always a privilege and a joy to be up here with you guys. Um, thank you for the few people that sit on the front row. I feel like you're way far away back there, but uh, it's all right. We'll, we'll make it. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're going to continue in the series. Uh, we started last week going through the book of James. So we're going to spend a long time in the book of James, 22 weeks. So we'll take us through the end of this semester as well as uh, into next semester as well. So um, you haven't missed much. If you missed last week, you only missed the first four verses. All right. So we're taking a slow, slow drive. Okay. So uh, trying to find all the just richness of God's word in James. So James chapter one, um, I was reading a book a couple weeks ago, it's called The Wisdom Pyramid, and in that book it gave a bunch of different stats, and in one of the stats it gave is a nerdy stat, alright, so hang on with me just for a second. It said this, um, by the year 2020, so it was written several years ago, by the year 2020 there will be 40 times more bytes of data on the internet than stars in the observable universe, alright? Some of you like computer engineers loving this right now. Everybody else is like, I don't even know what you just said, right? So by the year 2020, 40 times more bytes of data on the internet than stars in the observable universe. Like we have access to so much information in our world, right? Like at your fingertips every single day, so much access to information. Why is it that it feels like, I don't know if it's true, but it feels like we act more immaturely than ever. Like we have access to so much information, but we still act immaturely in a, in a lot of different ways. Why is it that we can know so much, but have a hard time figuring out how to actually live? Like, let me give you some examples. So we know like all about like how to make money in our world. There's information of like, how do you make money? But so many people live in debt. Like, why is it that we know so much about food, and if you're anything like me, you still make terrible food choices every week, it feels like, right? Like, you, you watch the Iowa game, maybe, sorry, like, if you watched last night, but maybe you just ate your feelings afterwards, right? Like, you ate lots of feelings, right? Um, but, like, we know so much, or maybe you know... I mean, we have access to so many podcasts and books and resources on marriage and parenting, yet why do we still struggle to be married? Why do we still struggle in our parenting? Like so much information, how can we be so smart in our world, but it doesn't seem like we're any wiser? But is that just everybody else or is that, is that you? Is that me? Like... Maybe you are great at making a budget, but you can't figure out how to not put things on your credit card. Maybe you can, like, you can think about, like, oh, I want to, I know that I, as a husband, I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loves the church, but, like, I still get really annoyed and talk harshly to my spouse. Or I know that I need to be more present with my kids but I can't stop scrolling on my phone. Like, why is it that we have access to so much information, but we can't figure out how to live? How many of you this morning would say, like, I would love to be wiser in my life? 
That's a good thing, all right? Or like, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand on this one, would say like, yeah, I think I lack wisdom in my life sometimes. I would raise my hand on that one. So how do we gain wisdom in life? That's what James is going to address this morning. How do we gain wisdom? So again, we're going to be in chapter one. We're going to look at verses five through eight. How do we gain wisdom when we don't know what to do? All right. James chapter one, verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Right? So it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, now let's get on the same page of what we mean when we're talking about wisdom. This is my definition for wisdom. All right? I'm sure there's people that have better definitions, but this would be my definition. Wisdom is understanding how to practically use truth in life understanding how to practically use truth in life. So what is, wisdom is not just intellectual knowledge. So there are a lot of smart people that don't know how to live in this world, right? So it's not just this kind of theoretical, abstract thing out there, but it's taking, understanding the truth about life and then making it personal, making it practical, figuring out how to actually use it in life. Does that make sense? So you've got this understanding, but now we're actually going to put it into practice. That's what we're talking about when we talk about wisdom. Now, many of you know the wisest person in the Bible was Solomon. All right, Solomon was the wisest person in the Bible, King David's son, David's on the throne, but then he dies, Solomon takes over as king. And when Solomon takes over as king, he kind of has a freak out moment, like, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. And this is what he prays in 1 Kings 3, 7 through 12. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. So he's going, I don't know how to do this whole king thing. Like, my dad knew how to do it well. I don't know what I'm doing. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. Not just he's the king. He's the king of God's people. I don't know what to do here, God. You've chosen them, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? This is the Lord's response. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this, this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall rise, arise after you. How many of you would love that to be written about your life? Like, I'm the wisest person to ever exist, right? Like, sorry, we don't ever, won't ever have that written about us because that seems to be Solomon, right? But we could get to a wise spot in our lives. So for Solomon, he's going, I need wisdom. I don't know how to do this. And God said, man, that pleases me that you asked for it. You didn't ask for a long life. 
You didn't ask for wealth and possessions. You didn't ask for military success. What you asked for was wisdom and that pleased the Lord. That was a good thing. Wisdom is better than riches. It's better than long life. It's better than success. It's like an incomparable gain in this life to gain wisdom. We should all long for it. But how does James 1, 5 start out? Like, hey, if any of you lacks wisdom, it's a shortage, kind of a banking term there. Like, you don't have it. You are lacking in it. It's a humble place for you to be. Like, you look at your bank account and you're like, uh, I, got, I got nothing. I have no wisdom. I'm lacking wisdom. Now, this term lack here is the connecting point for what Jake talked about last week and what we're talking about this week. So if you went back to verses two through four, we're not gonna look at it on the screen, but remember last week, James starts this whole letter off saying, hey guys, if you're going through trials, I want you to consider it a joy. It's like so counterintuitive, right? Wait, I'm supposed to consider it a joy? Why? Because trials in our lives aren't about our comfort, they're about our development, developing us into mature followers of Jesus. So trials are meant not for us to just get out of and feel better about life, but we're to go through those trials. As we go through those trials, we're, we end up one day being lacking nothing. That's what it says in verse four, lacking nothing. So there's a connection point that James is trying to make here. So it's not two different things. So you're going through trials, going after maturity, but you're lacking something. So remember, if you're the, these Jewish Christians that James writing, is James is writing to, he's writing to them, they're scattered out everywhere now. They're not in like their home anymore. Because of persecution, they've been pushed to all these different places in the world. So as they've been pushed away, they don't know how to live life around, they've got some of their people, but they don't have all their people anymore. How are we supposed to live life this way? Like, this is not what we're familiar with. This is a hard spot. It's even a trial. This is really difficult. What do we do? Have you guys ever been in a trial and you don't know what to do? Maybe you're there now. Like, as a follower of Jesus, you're like, I believe in God. Like, I love God. But I don't know what to do in this situation. What do you do when you don't know what to do? How do you live when you don't know how to live? James is gonna make that really clear here. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Verse five again says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him ask God. Now the tense of that word ask, we see it kind of like when we read it here, like, oh, this is a one and done type thing. I'm gonna ask one time and be done with it. But the tense of this word actually means you keep on asking. You have permission to beg God for wisdom. That's an amazing thing. Like you can keep coming back to God over and over. God, I don't know what to do in this situation. I need your help. God, I'm lacking wisdom in this situation. Please, I'm begging you. Can you please give me wisdom? It is okay for you to do that. You have permission to beg. How do we do this? James chapter four, verse eight. So a little later in James, this is what James says. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. What a promise, guys. What a promise. Like, draw near to God. And God Almighty is going to draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But he says, draw near to God. You don't know 
what to do in a situation. You're going through a trial in this life. You know you're intellectually supposed to consider it joy, but how do you actually live that out? He says, go ask God. Draw near to God. Draw near to him. Now, why would you draw near to God? Proverbs in chapter 9, verse 10, many of you know Proverbs like so much wisdom. Wisdom literature, and it says this, Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Like, where does wisdom begin? It begins with the Lord. You revering and treasuring God above all else. You don't know what to do in a situation. You run near to God. That's where it begins. You draw near to the Lord. But so often, when we go through trials, we would draw from the Lord, right? Right? I don't know what to do in this situation. And you go, instead of asking for wisdom, you go, God, why am I in this? Is it okay for you to ask why? Can God handle your why? Of course he can handle your why. He may not tell you the answer ever. He didn't say ask for whys here. He asked why. He says ask for wisdom in the midst of it. Think back. Some of you know the story of Job, right? Job is a super godly guy in the Old Testament. And he was really wealthy. And so one day Satan comes to God and he says, hey, you know that your, your, your servant Job? You know him? You remember Job, God? God's like, yeah, of course I do. Right, obviously Michael's paraphrase here, okay? So you know Job. The only reason he follows you is because he's wealthy and he's getting all the things that he wants. And God says, okay, I don't think that's true. I know that's not true. So he Satan goes, let me do whatever I want and I'll show you that he doesn't really want to follow you. And God says, you can do anything you want except kill him. You can't do that. And what proceeds to happen in Job's life is horrific. If we think about our trials, he loses everything, like times a million it feels like. So much just hardship in his life. Well, Job has these friends and Job's friends are, seem to be okay initially, but then they start going, hey, Job, what have you done to God? You're obviously not following God very well. And if you're not following God very well, this is why all this bad stuff is happening to you. He's like, uh, no, I love God. Like I'm for God. I don't know why these things are happening. And eventually his friends kind of get to him and finally make him question God. Job questions God. And it's like one of those moments, if I'm Job, the way the Lord responds, I just kind of want to crawl into a hole over here and be like, uh, God's like, are you the one that made the ocean? Are you the one that told the ocean where to stop? Like, and he goes on this long monologue where Job's just sitting there humbled, like, uh, maybe I shouldn't question God. And at the end of all that, does God ever tell Job, Hey, Job, just so you know, I know all this bad stuff's happening, but just so you know, me and Satan are doing this thing over here and he's trying to get you to not follow me. Wouldn't that have been helpful for Job in the midst of all the trials for him to know that Satan was behind all this stuff? Wouldn't that have been nice? God never tells him. Because he goes, I'm not, I'm not worried about you knowing why. I'm asking you to be faithful in the midst of it. So instead of asking for wisdom, we often ask for wise. 
Or, Jape mentioned this last week, instead of asking for wisdom in a trial, we ask for a way out of the trial. We ask for an early exit, right? What if God wants you to wisely exist in a trial rather than getting an early exit from a trial? What if God wants you to wisely exist in a trial rather than getting an early exit from a trial? We want a way out. But God wants us to have wisdom in the midst of it. Now let me give you an example of how this might look. This is one example of a million that I could give. We got a lot of people in our church, Veritas as a whole, a lot of really godly ladies. Before they were Christians, they got married. And they have unbelieving spouses. Unbelieving spouses that are really passive at home. Unbelieving spouses that aren't leading at home. And the world's wisdom would say, hey, I know this is hard. Just get out. Just get out. But the husband doesn't want a way out. Husband doesn't want a divorce. But the world would say like, man, that doesn't feel right. Like you're working hard. He's not doing anything. Just get out and be happy. According to 1 Corinthians 7, you don't just get out and quit. It says, you... You pursue godliness and maybe you win him over. But the world's wisdom would say, just get out. God's wisdom doesn't just say that. Again, just an example. This is not a topic, the sermon about marriage and divorce. But we can look instead of asking for wisdom, how do I still remain married and go through this really difficult trial with a guy that's not on the same page? God would say, you need to Seek me, draw near to me, ask for wisdom daily. How do we ask? It says, let him ask God. And then the beginning of verse six says this. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. So God says, hey, you have permission to beg me for wisdom. Not only do you have permission to beg me for wisdom, but there's actually a little stipulation on it. You can't just articulate, God, I need wisdom today. Give it to me. He says, you need to ask in faith. Now, understanding what James means by faith is really critical here. The tagline of our sermon series is faith that works. Because James, when he talks about faith, he's not talking just about the initial time that you believed in God. He's not talking about just initial faith, but active faith. So how do I keep trusting in God? You are lacking wisdom. You ask God, but you need to continuously trust in God. Faith for James is continuing confidence in who God is and what God's done. So yes, I believe in God. And I can remember back to, for me, when I was 14 years old and I prayed beside my parents' bed. Because the Lord had convicted me of my sin and I recognized the gospel and I recognized how amazing Jesus was. And I was this self-centered, prideful, arrogant Pharisee that knew a bunch of Bible answers and Bible stories. But it wasn't just about my initial belief. James is saying, okay, there's an initial belief, but then there's a continuous trusting of God. It's an active belief. So what James is saying here is, you don't know what to do, beg God for wisdom. But don't just articulate that you need it. Don't just articulate that you believe in God and think that he's going to give it to you. 
It's asking God and trusting God, but then he gives more explanation. So he says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. Now this understanding, this word doubting here, I think is the critical piece to this whole paragraph of this text, all right? So when James talks about doubting other places in this letter, he could use several different words for doubting, but he uses one specifically. And it shows up in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So let's see how James uses this word doubting. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions? That's actually the same word for doubting that he uses here. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So what was going on that we're going to learn about in a few months here, or a few weeks, in this assembly, when they would gather together as a church, there would be wealthy people come in and they were dressed nicely. They were poor people come in they weren't dressed nicely and the leaders of the church would go or the people in the church would go hey you're dressed nicely you get to sit on the front row all right you guys obviously don't care about that all right but you for other people like you you're not dressed you can't sit there you can't sit in the good places you come sit at my feet be my servant he says what you've done is you've made distinctions in your church you've separated people in your church This is the same word that James uses for doubting. Doubting here is not just a struggle to believe in God. So I'm going to ask for wisdom. I don't know what to do. Like he goes, don't just, don't just ask without doubting because you're struggling to believe in God. What James is trying to get at is there's a struggle to commit to God. Not a struggle to believe in God, but a struggle to commit to God. And then he, what he does is he gives two descriptions of what a doubter looks like. What does a doubter look like? Verses 6 and 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Then verse 8. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the issue for James is you're asking for wisdom but your loyalties are divided your loyalties are separated now when I think of this it maybe this will help you understand what I mean so I grew up in South Carolina about 30 minutes from Clemson University so growing up I went to lots of Clemson games it's not been a good season all right thus far all right but a couple weeks then after high school I graduated but I didn't go to Clemson I went to a little small school called Charleston Southern who Clemson played two weeks ago Charleston Southern's never going to win that game in the history of their school all right well then I moved to Louisiana to start seminary when I started seminary I started working at a church on LSU's campus met my wife who was an LSU grad okay so we got Clemson and Charleston Southern and LSU then we moved to Iowa and there's Iowa fans and there's Iowa State fans so every Saturday when my boys sit down to watch TV watch a football game they look at me and they go dad who are we cheering for today 
They have no idea. Like, we don't understand. Are we cheering for Clemson today? Charleston Southern? Iowa? Iowa State? LSU? Who are we cheering for, Dad? Because their loyalties are divided. They don't get it. Dad's loyalties aren't divided. My kids don't get it yet. They're not, they, they do know you don't pull for Alabama or South Carolina. That's like the things that they do know, okay? But they don't know who they're supposed to be cheering for. So there's divided loyalties in our household. What James is saying is, this is how you're operating when you ask for wisdom. Your loyalty is to God and to a bunch of other gods in your life. You want wisdom, but you also want the idol of comfort. You long to know what to do in this life, but you also want to have control in life. You can't figure out how to live in this life and you want wisdom, but you also want the God of pleasure in your life. And your loyalties are divided. And this is where he gets into, you're actually like a wave or you're like the sea, right? like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind you've seen the sea you've seen how there's just an this like ordinary instability of the sea like it doesn't just flow the same way all the time and then when wind kicks up it really is out of control saying that's what you're doing when you're doubting when you ask for wisdom one moment you're for God one moment you're for this one moment you want the world's wisdom one moment you want God's wisdom And you're all over the place. He said, don't ask for wisdom that way. It reminds me of Peter in the New Testament. Many of you know this story. When Jesus is walking on the water, it's late one evening. The disciples are on a boat. As they're on the boat, what happens? They look and they're like, there's a ghost on the sea, right? Because it looks like somebody's walking to them. Because it was somebody walking to them. But it wasn't a ghost. It was Jesus walking on the water. And Peter, in all his excitement, what does he do? Hey, Jesus, can I come do that too? And Jesus, in his grace, he's like, sure, come on, Peter. So Peter jumps out of the boat and he's walking on the water towards Jesus. You're experiencing a miracle. Isn't this amazing? This is awesome. Well, then what happens? The wind and the waves kick up. And his focus was on Jesus. But now it starts to look around at the wind and the waves. And as he starts to look around, he starts to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. And again, Jesus in his grace and mercy sticks out his hand, pulls Peter up. But then as any good dad would do, he uses it as a a teachable moment, right? And what's the question that Jesus asked Peter? After he's jumped out toward Jesus, he's all for Jesus, but then he starts seeing the wind and the waves. Peter, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? You were all for me. And then you saw the wind and the waves that you're not consistent any longer. You're doubting. You're being tossed about by the ways of this world. He said, you want wisdom in this life. You can't ask for wisdom and then be all over the place and expect to get it from the Lord. We're wavering and and inconsistent in our commitment to God. We ask God for wisdom and then we run to Google for more wisdom. 
We ask God for wisdom and then we run to our parents really quickly. We ask God for wisdom and then we run to our friends. We ask God for wisdom and then we run to some social media influencer like, oh, they went through a hard time. They look like they appeared to everything went great throughout it. So we look at them and say, that's where I want wisdom from. And God goes, what are you doing? Like one moment you really wanted it from me and now you want it from the world. Guys, we don't need more opinions from people. We need more wisdom from God. We do not need more opinions from people. We need wisdom for God, from God. So when you don't know what to do and you're begging God for wisdom, but then somebody else comes along and goes, yeah, I know you, you want wisdom from God. I love that about you. I love that you're seeking God. But if this just feels right for you, if it makes you happy, then do this. Then you've bought into the world's wisdom. Yes, I know you want wisdom from God, but just listen to your heart in this situation. Listen to your heart. God would say your heart is wicked and deceitful. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to the Spirit. Or maybe you've got a friend going through a really hard time, and it's awful. And maybe, what is your wisdom ever to your friend? You just need to love yourself in this moment. Like, make self-care your highest priority. That is a lie. Because Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you better take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. I want the Lord's wisdom, but I really want the world's wisdom because that's what feels right in the moment. You're a doubter. You're a doubter. And what doubting is represented by later on or at other times in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4, this is what Paul says that being tossed about is like. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 14 says this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So he's saying, hey, there's leaders that have been put in charge of churches. And he gave those leaders for a specific purpose. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So leaders have been put in place to help grow up the rest of the body into maturity to equip them for building up the body of Christ. Why? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. You're going to build up these people and then listen to this, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The body of Christ is to be built up into maturity. We say as a church, we want to raise up mature disciples, right? We want you to all grow to become more and more like Jesus. That's why the church is here. Verse 14, so that, here's the purpose for your maturity, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says, Paul is saying, I don't want you to be tossed about. Every time a new teaching comes up, you jump on it and moment by moment, you're all over the place. He says, that's an immature person. You lack wisdom and not only are you lacking wisdom, you're lacking maturity when you operate this way. And then James goes on to say, not only are you this wind that's tossed about, or this wave that's tossed about, but you're a double-minded man. You're unstable in all your ways. A better translation of double-minded could be double-souled. Your soul is like 
one day for God, one day for the world. It's not that you're just weak in your faith doubting. I don't think James has an issue that you're like, I'm I'm just kind of weak. His issue is you got one mind toward heaven and one mind toward this earth. He goes, you want wisdom. You can't operate that way. Some of you have read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress in that he has a character in that book called Mr. Facing Both Ways. Mr. Facing Both Ways. Oh, I love God in this moment and I love the world in the next. Maybe a more relevant example to us would be what some people have called country music Christianity. Where, you know, country songs, like I live however I want all throughout the week and on the weekend, but on Sunday I'm going to be there with mama and I'm going to be praising God and I'm going to be lifting my hands up high and that's country music Christianity. That some country songs would say this, we cuss on them Mondays, we pray on them Sundays. We only talk to God when we need a savior. Find a girl that leaves you speechless, gets wild on Friday, but still loves Jesus. I mean, songs that are out there right now. But isn't that how we live our Christian life sometimes? I don't know what to do in this trial, and this trial is really hard. I, I want wisdom from you, God, but I really want to live my life how I want to live it. He said, that's not how you're going to get wisdom. Do your Fridays align with your Sundays in your life? Do your Mondays through Fridays align with your Sunday? Because the idea of being unstable in all your ways that James would call that, one commentator says, you're staggering and reeling like a drunkard in your life. There's nothing focused. You're all over the place. There's just this instability Where we want God's wisdom, but we're unwilling to let go of the world's wisdom and we're unwilling to let go of the world's pleasures. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27 say this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Guys, we want to be people, mature people who ask for wisdom that build our foundation on the rock. So how do we go about doing that? Well, in verse 7, it says, For the person, for that person, the one that's the doubter without faith, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. You should not expect to receive the wisdom of God if you're not fully committed to God. Now, you need to know God's not, or James is not questioning salvation. He's not questioning eternal life. He's not questioning whether you have the Spirit. To these Jewish Christians, he's questioning if you're committed to God. So let me ask this question to you. If God is giving out wisdom and he's a really good steward, are you a good investment to get wisdom from God? If God is giving out wisdom and he's a really good steward, are you a good investment to get wisdom from God? A bad investment for God would be the one that hears the truth but doesn't do it. 
So what if you do have faith and no doubts? Back to verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Here's the good news. God wants to give you wisdom. And he says, if you ask in the right way and your life is in the right way, he will give it to you generously without reproach. God will generously give you wisdom. Now, how does he give you wisdom? Proverbs 2, 6 says this. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Out of his mouth. Like, this is where this comes from. Where is wisdom coming from? Out of the mouth of God. Out of his word. Out of his word. Go to God's word to get God's wisdom. They will never be contrary to each other. God's word is sufficient. You don't need additional resources. God's word is good enough. Like, it's great. So how does God give this wisdom out through his word? He gives it generously. He gives it graciously, abundantly, without hesitation. Our lack of wisdom is met with God's gift of wisdom. Guys, I want you to think about how amazing this is. That an all-wise God... That an all-knowing God that knows every detail of every trial that you're in the midst of. He knows it all. A God that has eternal perspective in life. We see this much. God sees that much, right? A God that fully loves you. A God that has the power to change circumstances. He wants to pour out his wisdom to you. Like, it's like God has an endless pitcher of wisdom that never ends. And he's going, I'm going to keep pouring. As long as you're begging for it and as long as you're committed to me, I'm going to graciously keep pouring it out. That's amazing. That is amazing. And this is so consistent with who our God is, right? You know, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave generously gave what his own son for us this is who jesus is so it says god wants to give you wisdom generously without reproach without finding fault when you ask for wisdom there's going to be nothing from god that's a harsh reprimand he's not going to give any stinging words there's no repercussions there's no mocking there's no scolding from our god Some of you did not experience that from an earthly father. What you experienced, yeah, I'll give you this, but let me tell you how you really should have acted. God's not looking at us and when we go, I don't know what to do, God. He doesn't go, yeah, I know because you're dumb and you're not really smart. I'll give it to you. But that's how some of us experience things from our own earthly father. That's That's not our God. Without reproach. He's not just giving a stinging word to the side. He wants to give you wisdom. You humbly admit that you lack wisdom. God turns his face to you, but he turns his face away from the proud. He says it will be given to you. God promises that you can beg for wisdom. And if you're committed to him, he will give it to you. So quit wavering in trials. Beg God, go to his word, and I would say it this way, fully commit to God to generously receive wisdom from God. 
fully commit to God to generously receive wisdom from God. An exclusive commitment to God fosters a context for you to receive wisdom from God. So build your life on God and his wisdom. It's a firm foundation for you to build on. No more moment-to-moment Christianity. No more with one foot in the world and one foot in God's economy. Humbly recognize your lack of wisdom and draw near to him. Guys, God promises generous wisdom to mature beggars. And the lie that we could all believe is like, I don't have enough belief, I just need to believe harder. That's not what he's saying. Like, you, know, you don't need to just work harder. You don't need to believe harder. Here's the truth. You can't buy God's wisdom. You can't earn God's wisdom. You can't demand of God that he give you wisdom. He gives it to you generously and graciously and that's how he operates. Because that's our God. I want to generously, graciously pour it out. How do you, what do you do with this? Number one, fully commit to God in your life. Quit committing to the world and its wisdom. Commit to the Lord. Two, boldly ask God for wisdom. Fully commit to God. Boldly ask for wisdom. And then three, go to his word to figure out what the wisdom is. So what would that look like as a church if we all started doing this? I think we would be a really mature church. I think we would be a really steady church. That every time the news cycle changes, it doesn't bother Veritas because we're committed to Jesus. Every time the Democrats do this, it doesn't bother us. Every time the Republicans do this, it doesn't bother us because we're committed to Jesus. That's what a mature church does. Every time the world offers a new teaching, we go, no, we like Jesus. We're for Jesus. And in our maturity, we're joyful when trials come because we run to the Lord first and always. That's the kind of church I want Veritas or Banna to be. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are so kind to us. So kind. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your wisdom. That's amazing. That you would willingly, generously, graciously give us your wisdom. Father, we need it. We need it. God, I pray that as a church, we would be fully committed to you. We would not be committed to ourselves. We would not be committed to the world's wisdom. But Lord, we would be committed fully, single-mindedly, purely to you. Help us through your spirit to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.